This Capital Ministries Bible study from President and Founder Ralph Drawlinger is entitled Wilberforce, Insights on Successfully Persevering in Office, Part 1 of 2. British lawmaker William Wilberforce, who worked indefatigably for more than 20 years to abolish slavery in Great Britain, is often cited by the religious right as their exemplar for political activism. On July 26, 1833, after Wilberforce had left office and only three days before he died, Great Britain's House of Commons passed the Slavery Abolition Act and ended the practice of African slave trading throughout its empire. While Wilberforce is a wonderful model, it is evident that Christian political activists completely missed the point regarding what we can learn from the example of Wilberforce, especially when it comes to the role of the church in politics. Let me explain. William Wilberforce would be a forgotten figure in history had it not been for a pastor like John Newton. Newton remained singularly focused on his calling, which was making disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching the Word of God. He was perhaps just as responsible for ending the slave trade in Britain as Wilberforce, yet he never engaged directly in politics. A motion picture titled Amazing Grace highlights the life of William Wilberforce, and I heartily recommend it to you. This movie's title is derived from the famous Christian hymn of the same name, which was written by Newton. A self-described wretched man, Newton had been a slave trader who was dramatically saved by the powerful message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After his conversion, he became a pastor and had a profound personal impact on Wilberforce, not a political impact, but a spiritual one. Newton and other ministers within the church were responsible for helping Wilberforce develop convictions born from Scripture. Their discipleship efforts led Wilberforce to become a man driven by theology and doctrine. The church made Wilberforce who he was through the ministry of the Word. After he became a Christian, he decided to spend legislative recesses studying the Bible. It was common for him to spend 10 hours per day studying and memorizing Scripture. This righteous conviction rooted in biblical doctrine is what sustained and directed Wilberforce during his decades-long battle against slavery. Wilberforce's vital work occurred in the late 1700s. Today, as Christian lawmakers, you continue legislative battles for good laws that will underpin and buttress our nation. To aid you in your crucial work, we will examine in two parts Wilberforce, Insights on Successfully Persevering in Office. Our Introduction One of the darkest chapters in American history is 19th century African slavery. During America's Civil War, 1861-65, Bible scholars on both sides of the slavery issue were firing theological volleys back and forth at one another in an attempt either, number one, to decry the enslavement of one human being by another, or two, to justify slavery by aligning it with slavery in the Bible. Commenting on this theological warfare, one historian writes, Abolitionists argued vehemently that based on the Bible, the spirit of Christianity forbids the enslavement of one race by another. Slavery's defenders in the South argue just as vehemently that the Bible itself did not condemn slavery, but took it for granted. While it is not the purpose of this study 
to reconstruct and analyze the theological arguments surrounding this human atrocity. It is the firm conviction of this writer that 19th century African slavery in America was in no way biblically justified, nor was it justified in Great Britain. Let us examine the primary figure behind the abolition of African slavery in Great Britain 200 years ago, the politician William Wilberforce. And importantly, how did Wilberforce persevere in his decadal quest that changed the course of a nation? Contemporary Christian activists often cite this man as the par excellence example of Christian political activism. His ultimately successful 20-year fight in British Parliament to end slavery is looked upon as a jewel in the crown of moralistic campaigning. While it cannot be denied that Wilberforce fought a persevering, meritorious fight prevailing against all odds and helping to eradicate a vile cancer from his part of the world, what sustained him as he fought the good fight for so long? Was he motivated by the simple desire to take back the culture, or was there something deeper that put the fire in his bones to fight for righteousness? As we will show, it was the Word of God that dwelt richly in Wilberforce, a vibrant and growing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that steered his political career, informed his convictions, and gave him the motivation to persevere against incredible odds. The following survey of Wilberforce's life will bear this out. In Wilberforce's own words, quote, The diligent perusal of the Holy Scriptures would discover to us our past ignorance. We should cease to be deceived by superficial appearances and to confound the gospel of Christ with the systems of philosophers. We should become impressed with that weighty truth, so much forgotten and never to be too strongly insisted on, that Christianity calls on us as we value our immortal souls, not merely in general, to be religious and moral, but specially to believe the doctrines and imbibe the principles and practice the precepts of Christ, end quote. In yet another way, to answer what motivated him, he was involved in Bible study with other believers in Parliament, one that was led by a skilled Bible teacher named Newton. It saddens my heart that so many believers in office in America today do not get this. How unfortunate it is to see believers leaving office this year in discouragement. Unfortunately, many of them never connected to a Bible study while on the hill. Who was William Wilberforce? William Wilberforce was born in 1759 in Hull, England. He was a contemporary of some of England's and history's greatest preachers, including John Newton, John Wesley, and George Whitfield. God used unusual circumstances in the life of young Wilberforce to bring him into the company of evangelicals and one of these great men of God, John Newton writes Wilberforce biographer John Pollock, quote, When William was turning nine, his father died at the age of 40. Abel Smith became head of the business. The firm changed its name to Wilberforce and Smith, and William's life changed too. Not merely because he would be independent and quite rich when he came of age, but because he was sent, a year after his father's death, to live with his childless uncle and aunt, William and Hannah Wilberforce, at their Wimbledon Villa in the Surrey countryside in their London house in St. James Place. They put him to boarding school at Putney. As it turns out, quote, these relatives were despised evangelicals, 
friends of the preacher George Whitfield, the leader in the First Great Awakening, and John Newton, best known today as the author of Amazing Grace. Newton, an old sea dog, ex-naval deserter, ex-lecher, and ex-slave trader, who had been converted slowly during and after a storm at sea, fascinated the boy with his yarns. And Newton showed little William how sweet the name of Jesus sounds until his mother, horrified that he was turning Methodist, took him away, end quote. An article by Stephen Gertz on Wilberforce's relationship with Newton states, quote, As a boy of eight years or nine, he, Wilberforce, sat at the feet of the fascinating sea captain Newton, drinking in his colorful stories, jokes, songs, and perhaps most importantly, lessons of faith. Later in life, William remembered a younger evangelical John Newton, the parson of Olney in Buckinghamshire, who often preached in London and was soon to be famous as a hymn writer. A boy could hardly fail to be impressed by this jolly, affectionate ex-sea captain and slaver, who as a youth had been flogged in the Royal Navy for desertion and later suffered as the virtual slave of a white man's native mistress in West Africa. Wilberforce listened enthralled to his sermons and his stories, even reverencing him as a parent when I was a child, end quote. Seeds of faith may have been planted in young Wilberforce's life, yet the real fruit of true salvation was still years away. Wilberforce, Piper notes, quote, had admired George Whitfield, John Wesley, and John Newton as a child. But soon he left all the influence of the evangelicals behind, end quote. As noted previously, Wilberforce's, quote, mother was more high church and was concerned her son was turning Methodist. So she took him out of the boarding school where they had sent him and put him in another, end quote. In the holidays, the Wilberforce family began to scrub William's soul clear of Wimbledon and clap him a slow process. He, William, wrote manfully to his uncle, who he was pulled away from, of endurance under persecution from his family and of increasing in the knowledge of God and Christ Jesus, whom he sent, whom to know is life eternal. In Wilberforce's life, the intervening time between his childhood exposure to Newton and his later conversion via Isaac Milner's ministry was one of spiritual deadness. Says one writer about Wilberforce's college years, he, quote, lost any interest in biblical religion and loved circulating among the social elite, end quote. So far had he drifted, quote, Newton said sadly that nothing seemed left of his Wilberforce's faith except a more moral outlook than was usual among men of fashion, end quote. Being moral apart from regeneration was no more salvific back then than it is now or ever will be. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In the spiritual vacuum of his heart, Wilberforce made room for the popular religion of his day. Quote, in London, he, Wilberforce, had a sitting at the Essex Street Chapel, founded by Theopolis's Lindsay, the father of modern Unitarianism, one of the few clergy of the Church of England who had shown courage and principle enough to resign their livings on abandoning, like so many, a belief in the divinity of Jesus Christ. Lindsay still preached the Christian ethic and read the church services, and his chapel attracted several eminent men. Wilberforce rated him London's only fervent preacher, 
Since the evangelical or methodistical preachers he had enjoyed with the uncle and aunt were now outside his pale, end quote. But Wilberforce would eventually be saved from this anti-biblical notion of Jesus Christ. Quote, Wilberforce's subsequent accounts of his long-drawn-out conversion, or perhaps rededication to the Christ of his boyhood faith, are somewhat contradictory, but he gives a prime share to his reading Doddridge's book with Milner. They possibly looked up relevant passages in the Bible, for Wilberforce says he adopted his religious principles from the perusal of the Holy Scriptures, and the instruction I derive from a friend of very extraordinary natural and acquired powers, end quote. Wilberforce had come to salvation in Jesus Christ at the age 25, a few years before a life-changing meeting with Newton. According to one biographical sketch of Wilberforce's life, after he won his election to Parliament in 1784, he, quote, agreed to take a tour of the continent when he happened to run into his old schoolmaster from Hull, Isaac Milner, Wilberforce impulsively invited him to join the traveling party. That invitation was to change Wilberforce's life. By the time Milner deposited him on 22nd February 1785 at number 10 Downing Street, Wilberforce had reached intellectual ascent to the biblical view of man, God, and Christ. He thrust it to the back of his mind and resumed his social and political life. In the summer of that year, Slowly, intellectual ascent became profound conviction. But still not a Christian by his own summation, it was not until the third week of October, 1785, the great change, as he afterwards termed it, had driven Wilberforce to rise early each morning to pray. The story goes that Milner spoke of his Christian faith to Wilberforce and that the latter initially treated the subject flippantly but eventually agreed to read the scriptures daily, end quote. Wilberforce's crisis of faith. Faced with tremendous difficulty, feeling weary and confused over how to reconcile his political career with his new life in Christ, Wilberforce turned to his boyhood hero, John Newton, now 60 years old and rector of St. Mary Woolnoth in the city. Says Gertz of Wilberforce's 1785 meeting with Newton, quote, now, in a moment of spiritual crisis, wondering whether his reborn faith in God required him to leave politics, Wilberforce knew who could help him most. He mustered his courage and strode to the front door to call on his old friend, end quote. It is noteworthy that when it came to his political career, Wilberforce sought counsel from none other than a minister of the Word of God. Newton advised Wilberforce to stay in office and pursue Christ as well. What we can learn from Newton and Wilberforce pertaining to the differing roles of church and state. Newton and Wilberforce served to magnificently model a clear, biblically correct understanding of the relationship between the institution of the church and the institution of the state. The former is to disciple the latter versus trying to do its job. God appointed Wilberforce to lead in his institution of the state whereas God appointed Newton to lead in his institution of the church. The latter is called to make disciples, the former is called to moralize the unregenerate. As mentioned in the preamble, it is ineffective for leaders in the church 
to assume the work of God's leaders in the state, especially while turning a blind eye relative to their call of making disciples of the state's leaders. The Life of a Saved Politician Once saved and sure that he should stay in politics, Wilberforce, quote, worked hard to strengthen not only mental, but spiritual stamina, end quote. In the process, quote, the Bible became his best-loved book, and he learned stretches by heart, end quote. He did this so that he could meditate at night, or should his eyes trouble him, or when needing guidance in his place in the commons or at committees. In other words, he let the word of Christ dwell richly in him, Colossians 3.16. Perhaps most telling of the primacy he put on his salvation over his entire life is the following statement by Pollock, quote, For Wilberforce wanted to subject not merely his appetites, but his politics to Christ. A man who acts from the principles I profess, he told a constituent three years after the conversion, reflects that he is to give an account of his political conduct at the judgment seat of Christ. End quote. Wilberforce's reliance and accountability to biblical precepts underlie the tremendous things he did as a legislator, namely, fighting a 20-year battle to abolish the African slave trade. It is unfortunate that the latter fact about Wilberforce is often trumpeted without a proper and necessary emphasis on the former. Like a faithful pastor-teacher is continually mindful of James 3.1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. It seems that Wilberforce had similar sentiments about answering to the Lord Jesus Christ one day for his political endeavors as a minister of God for good, Romans 13.4. It was also only a few years after his conversion that Wilberforce's heart slowly became set on abolishing the slave trade. Much could be said from a historical perspective about the providential workings of God through specific people and circumstances that brought the issue to a rolling boil in Wilberforce's heart. But suffice to say that God raised up the right person at the right time for the right task. Next week, in Wilberforce Insights on Successfully Persevering in Office Part 2, we will examine the importance of evangelicalism and discipleship in Wilberforce's life and how those influences resulted in his successful career-long political battle to change the world. This concludes our Bible study for this week. May God bless you deeply. Thank you for all you do in our great country and on the Hill. This is Frank Sontag.